Part One, Chapter Thirty One of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Barry Eads. Chapter Thirty One The Battle of Sharpsburg. The order was given to fall in, and our skeleton brigade took up their position on top of a hill high behind a post and rail fence. The storm so long gathering was about to burst, but the men, having become callous and indifferent, from extreme hunger, thought only that in case of a victory they would find plenty of enemies' haversacks to satisfy the cravings of their empty stomachs. As the Virginians, with drawn faces, sat in ranks, with eyes blind to the beauty of the scene which looked its richest in its autumn robing, and its sweetest in the morning freshness, they, hungry souls, had no other meditations, no other sentiments, save those over their empty haversacks, the banquet halls deserted, and their aching void which nothing earthly filled. Just about this time a cow, a foolish, innocent, confiding cow, with a pathetic look in her big eyes, and all unknowing of soldiers' ways, came grazing up to the line. A dozen bullets went crashing through her skull before she knew what hurt her, and a score of knives were soon at work. In an incredibly short time, more quickly than a rabbit could be skinned, the hide of the cow was taken off, and a ravenous pack of wolves could not sooner have laid bare the bones than did our hungry brigade. Everything was eaten, even the tail, which but a short hour ago had been calmly and quietly switching flies from her back. There were no available cooking utensils in the whole regiment, save those which the old darky carried for the benefit of the officers for whom he cooked and those we had no more chance of using than if they had been the queen's. Our kitchen apparatus consisted of a tin plate and a large tin cup, holding about a quart, which cup was carried by each private, fastened to the left shoulder with a small strap, sewed on the jacket for that purpose. By means of these we could accomplish most satisfactorily all the cooking we required in the way of boiling, frying, and stewing. But neither plate nor cup answered as wherewithal to cook the beef, and, as has been stated, skillet or pot or frying pans there were none. The soldier is an inventive genius, or twin brother to it, inasmuch as necessity is the mother of both, and at this important period of action he was not to be balked of his meal because there happened to be no double-acting, patented, warranted never to wear out, self-regulating, non-fuel-consuming range, nor a French chef on hand perished the thought. No, he hunted around and found flat stones lying all about in profusion. These he heated hissing hot and broiled the beef upon them. Now, to give one more instance of the soldier's unfailing ingenuity, which by long practice and much thought had become a science. There lived not far from Gordonsville a widow who was noted for her niggardliness and extreme parsimony. So stingy and mean was she that a placard was nailed on her gate, under her own direction, with the inscription, No soldier fed or housed here. The best foragers of the brigade met their match in the old woman, and returned defeated from the field. At last she was left in undisturbed possession of the place, and no hungry soldiers were ever fed at her table. But one day, a famished-looking, lank, angular specimen of the genus Reb appeared at her farmhouse and knocked at her door. When the animated figure of war and famine combined stalked into her yard, the old lady was speechless with wrath. She opened the door, prepared for immediate hostilities, 
but the sad-faced defender of the soil was asking in a humble voice and with a deprecatory manner, "'Please, marm, lend me your iron pot.' "'Man, I have no iron pot for you.' This was snappily jerked out, while an evident determination was shown to shut the door in his face. "'Please, marm, I won't hurt it.' "'You do not suppose,' she began in angry tones, "'you do not for one moment suppose I'm going to lend you my pot to carry to camp, do you?' If I were fool enough, I would never see it again, so don't think that you are going to get it. Go over there to Mrs. Hanger's. She will lend you hers. One thing is certain, I won't. Marm, he still pleaded, I will bring your pot back. Hope I might die if I don't. If you don't believe me, I won't take it out of the yard, but will kindle a fire just here. Please, Marm. What do you want with it? asked the old woman, who was beginning to feel that she would be none the worse in pocket by granting the request but might, on the contrary, be gainer in some way. "'I want to bile some stone soup,' answered the soldier, looking pitifully at his questioner. "'Stone soup? What's stone soup?' And the old lady's curiosity began to rise. "'How do you make it, and what for?' "'Marm,' replied the mournful infantryman, "'ever since the war began the rations have become scarcer and scarcer. Until now they have stopped entirely, and we uns have to live on stone soup to keep from starving.' "'Stone soup,' mused the woman. "'I never heard of it before. Must be something new. One of those new-fangled things. Cheap, too. Well, how do you say you make it?' "'Please, marm, you get a pot and some water, and I will show you. We biles the stone.' The ancient dam trotted off full of wonder and inquisitiveness to get the article. Yes, it was worth knowing the recipe. Fully worth the use of the pot. Besides, she would make her dinner off that soup and save that much.' So, very much mollified, she returned and found the soldier had already kindled his fire. Placing the kettle over it, he waited for the water to boil. In the meanwhile, selecting a rock about the size of his head, which he washed clean and put in the pot. Then he said to the old woman, who had been peering into the pot through her spectacles, "'Marm, please give me a little piece of bacon about the size of your hand to give the soup a relish.' The old lady trotted off and got it for him. Another five minutes passed. "'Is it done?' she inquired. It's most done, but please, marm, give me half a head of cabbage just to make it taste right. Without a word, the cabbage was brought, and ten minutes slipped away. Is it not done by this time? Again she asked. Most done, with a brightening look, and then as if a new idea had just occurred to him. Please, marm, can't you give me half a dozen potatoes just to give it a nice flavor like? All right, answered the widow, who by this time had become deeply absorbed in the operation. The potatoes followed the meat and cabbage, and another ten minutes followed that. "'Is it done yet? Pears to me that it's a long time cooking,' she said, getting somewhat impatient. "'Most done, marm, most done,' insinuatingly. "'Just get me a small handful of flour, a little pepper, and some termartuses, and it will be all right then.' The things were duly added from the widow's stores and bubbled in the pot a while. Then the soup was pronounced done and lifted from the fire. The soldier pulled out his knife with spoon attachment and commenced to eat. He lost no time between mouthfuls. The economical widow hastened in and returned with a plate, which she filled. On tasting the first spoonful, she exclaimed, "'Why, man, this is nothing but common meat and vegetable soup.' "'So it is, marm,' responded the soldier after a while, for there was not a minute to spare for talking. "'So it is, marm, but we call it stone soup.' 
The old lady carried the pot back into the house, but not before the man had emptied it, learning for the first time how a soldier's ingenuity could compass anything and outwit even herself. She said, They have old Nick on their side. And tradition adds she even kept that stone and swore by it. The enemy's guns had begun to play upon Sharpsburg as a small party of the 17th entered the village on a tour of sightseeing and touring generally. The many hills echoed and re-echoed the war music that for the last three months had been so familiar to our ears. Yes, the place was indeed forsaken, not so much as a stray dog being seen upon the streets. But soon the shells began dropping on the housetops, making a fearful noise as they tore up the plank, split the rafters, and sent the shingles flying in the air. As the din was at its height, a young girl of apparently sixteen years appeared on the street bareheaded, her long hair streaming wildly. The Sharpsburg maiden was mad, it seemed, not from love, but with terror, and tore frantically along, screaming piercingly as a shell exploded over her head. Her presence at such a time gave rise to much conjecture, which was never explained. There she was making her way out of town, indifferent to every feeling except the blind, overpowering instincts of dismay, and we never knew or heard more. Keeping on, our squad halted before a gate which opened into one of the most enticing-looking gardens. The grounds were beautifully laid out, and were bright with flowers and rich in luscious fruits. The purple grapes hung in clusters, the trees bent beneath their burden of golden peaches, russet pears, and ruddy-cheeked apples. The temptation to enter was too strong to resist. In the center of the garden nestled as pretty a vine-covered cottage as the most romantic maiden would wish to live in with her own love-crowned king. The front doors were locked, but on going to the rear we found on the back porch an old couple, as calm and composed as if war and carnage had been a thousand miles away. It would have been a sweet domestic picture at any time, one worthy of an artist's brush that old John Anderson and his wife, sitting placidly and lovingly, hand in hand, in the home that their joint labors had beautified and consecrated, in their journey of life, so near the bottom of the hill where they would soon sleep together. But all the more striking was it, when the boom of the cannon rattled the casements and shook the very foundation of the house beneath their feet. I went up and remonstrated with them for remaining in the village. I told them that the battle would probably rage near that very spot, and that shells would fire the house even if they did not succeed in first splitting it into kindling wood, and urged them to leave the place while there was yet time. The old man replied that they had no place to go, that this had been their home all their lives, they knew no other, and they would rather die here than leave it. He had not done the rebels any harm, he said, that they should come and drive him out of his house. No, they would not go. They intended to stay. Do we not? he added, appealing to his aged spouse, who only answered by an emphatic nod. Seeing that argument was useless, we left the house with a farewell word of warning. They vouchsafed no answer, but sat awaiting the result without fear. The Yankees carried the village by a charge a few hours after. Let us hope that the worthy couple had changed their minds in time. Walking leisurely out of the garden, and turning into the road which led to the seventeenth, we were passing a group of soldiers who were lying behind a fence, watching the flash of the enemy's artillery upon a hill about a mile off, when suddenly a twelve-pound shell from those very guns struck the ground in front of us, 
and then, as if cast by a child's hand, rolled gently in among the group, and there rested with the fuse sputtering and blazing. The effect was ludicrous. Every man jumped, hopped, ran, or rolled from the harmless-looking black ball as if it had been the smallpox, nor drew up until a respectable distance had been put between them. Then with bowed forms and faces to the ground they awaited its supreme pleasure. It came soon enough, and carried away a whole panel of the fence by the force of its discharge. "'What a mercy the fuse was so long!' we said as we returned and gathered up the fruit that we were carrying for future delectation. The Yankees were preparing for the combat. On the heights, some two thousand yards away, fresh batteries took position and opened, ours replying, and so the forenoon wore away. The war clamor increased, and soon on our left the splashing of musketry and then the steady rattling discharges showed the battle was fully joined. We soon heard the old cry, Fall in! And in line we advanced and took our places, waiting. Our position was directly in front of the village of Sharpsburg, on a high hill behind a new post and rail fence. The topography of the country consisted of a succession of undulating hills and corresponding valleys. The elevation upon which we stood sank rather abruptly to a deep bottom, and rising suddenly, like the waves of the sea, formed another crest about sixty yards on an air line from our position. Any attacking force would be invisible until it arrived on the top of the crest opposite, and in pistol-shot distance, or what we call point-blank musketry range. In our front, about a mile away, was Antietam Creek, spanned by a bridge and guarded by Toombs' Georgian Brigade, which was only a skeleton command. Our army surrounded Sharpsburg in a semicircle, and we could lie there and hear the raging, frenzied battle on our left. Reports of the cannon were incessant. At times it seemed as if a hundred guns had exploded simultaneously, and then run off into splendid file firing. Then the fight commenced at Antietam Bridge, where Toombs waited with his Georgians. The Yankees had commenced to shell their front, which we all knew was a prelude to the deadlier charge of infantry. The shells began to sail over us as we lay close behind the fence, shrieking their wild war-song, that canzonet of carnage and death. We cowered in the smallest possible space, as the Hotchkiss, with the shriek of a demon which made the bravest quail, burst far in the rear. It is not more destructive than others, this projectile, but there is a great deal in the terrific noise it makes to work on men's fears, caused by the jagged edge of lead which is left on the shell as it leaves the gun. For this reason alone, the moral effect of the Hotchkiss shell is powerful. The Chinese apply this principle of warfare most successfully when they beat their gongs. The enemy was silent for a while, but it was the calm that is but a preface to a hurricane. The musketry at the bridge broke out fiercely, rising and swelling into full compass. Sharp work was going on, and in about an hour's time we saw Toombs's small brigade rushing back, its line broken, but its spirit and morale intact. It retreated to the village, was reformed, and stood waiting as our reserve. We made ready, and expected to see the victorious enemy follow hard upon the heels of the retreating rebels. But to our astonishment, an hour of absolute inactivity followed. No advance nor demonstrations was made in our front, while the battle on our left was raging as fiercely as ever. At last, toward evening, the shelling was renewed. Brown's battery, supporting our brigade, replied, and soon came the singing overhead of the minis. 
There is a particularly tuneful pitch to the flight of these little leaden balls, and a musical ear can study the difference in tone as they skim through the air. A member of the 17th, an amateur musician of no mean order, speaking of them in this connection, said, I caught the pitch of that mini just now. It was a swell from E-flat to F, and as it disappeared in the distance, the note retrograded to D. A very pretty change. It was now late in the evening, and the men, having become cramped from lying in the same position for such a length of time, were moving about and seeking relief from the long constraint in walking up and down, when the guarded, stern, nervous voice of our commanding officer sent every soldier back into line. Quick, men, back to your posts! There, as we waited, and each man looked along the ranks, the slight, frail line, stretching out behind the fence, to withstand the onset of solid ranks of blue, he felt his heart sink within him and grow faint. Yet who could but be proud of such soldiers as those? They were the floor de mille of the army. By unquenchable pride and indomitable will only had they been able to keep up at all in this campaign. Dirty, gaunt, and tattered as they were, yet they showed their lineage. Marshal Valet, as he witnessed the Scotch gentry fighting in the ranks under the Chevalier St. George in the Battle of Malcope, exclaimed, Pardi, gentle homme est toujours gentle homme. Yes, this string of tattered men, lying there with rifles clenched tightly in their hands, awaiting without a visible tremor almost certain destruction, had marched wearily on and on, although their gaunt frames seemed as if they might sink at every step. They had followed their colors through the long, hot, dusty way, while fatigue was relaxing their muscles, closing their eyes, and deadening all but their wills. They had dragged themselves to the field with stone-bruised feet and aching limbs. They had fought and won battles, while hunger was gnawing at their vitals. They had never halted, though nearly naked, covered with dust, devoured by vermin, and half-famished at all times. Through the smoke of battle, through the torrid heat of a summer sun, through pain and incessant hardships, they had never faltered. Neither the knights who followed Coeur de Lyon to the Holy Land, or those who swore fealty to the Holy Grail, ever did their duty more nobly, more staunchly, than did those dust-covered, bronzed men. The brigade was a mere remnant of its former strength, not a sixth remaining. The seventeenth, that once carried into battle eight hundred men, now stood on the crest, ready to die in a forlorn hope, with but forty-six muskets. The old organization of the riflemen, Company A, that often used to march on a grand review in two platoons of fifty men each, carried into Sharpsburg but one musket. For the Alexandria riflemen, the crack company of Alexandria, was not at Sharpsburg. Many had fallen dead and wounded in the battles. More were sick and in the hospitals, and the few that were left after the Manassas fight had dropped exhausted by the wayside, and I was the only one of the rank and file left, and Lieutenant Tom Perry the only officer. It is but little wonder that the thin, attenuated line of the brigade made up their minds that they were doomed to fall, knowing as they did that we had no reserves. Well, a man can die but once. Suddenly, an eight-gun battery tried to shell us out, preparatory to the infantry advance, and the air around us grew resonant with the bursting iron. Brown's battery of four guns took its place about twenty steps on our right, for our right flank was entirely undefended, and replied to the enemy. A shell burst not ten feet above the seventeenth, where the men were lying prone on their faces. It literally tore to pieces poor Appic, of Company E, mangling his body terribly, and splattering his blood over many who were lying around him.
A quiver of the flesh, and all was still. Another Hotchkiss came streaking where we were cowering. Still the line not move nor utter a sound. The shells were splitting all around and whirling up dust in such quantities as threatened to bury as well as wound and kill us. Oh, those long, long minutes! As we were waiting with closed eyes, waiting disfigurement or death, expecting a shock of the plunging iron with every breath we drew, would it never end? For fifteen minutes the men had tightly clenched their jaws and never moved. A line of corpses might have been as motionless. At last, at last, the firing entirely ceased. Brown's battery limbered up and moved away, because they said the ammunition was exhausted. But curses loud and deep came from the brigade, and they were openly charging the battery with deserting them in the coming ordeal. And it was in truth a desertion for instead of having thrown their shells at the enemy's eight-gun battery, thereby drawing their fire upon us, they should have lain low and waited until the infantry attack was made, and then every shot would have told, every shell, grape or canister charge, would have been a help. But there was no use wasting further thought. The guns moved away and left us to our fate, and there was an end of it. An ominous silence followed, premonitory of the deluge. The seventeenth were lying, with the rest of the brigade, flat upon the earth behind the post and rail fence, their rifles resting on the lower rails. The men's faces were pale, their features set, their hearts throbbing, their muscles strung like steel. We heard the low tones of the officer. Steady, men, steady. They are coming. Ready. The warning click of each hammer as the guns were cocked ran down the lines. A momentary solemn sound chronicling for many the brief seconds before the awful plunge into eternity was made. For when that click is heard, the supreme moment has come. The hill in front of us shut out all view, but the advancing Federals were close upon us. They were mounting the hill, the loud tones of their officers, the clanking of their equipments, and the steady tramp of the approaching columns were easily distinguishable. And then Colonel Corse said quietly and calmly, but in a tone which all could hear, Steady, my men. Seventeenth, don't fire until they get above the hill. Each man lined flat upon his breast, his weapon resting, as I said before, on the lowest rail of the fence, sighted his rifle about two feet above the crest, and then, with his finger on the trigger, waited until an advancing form should interpose between the bead and the clear sky beyond. The first object we saw was the glint eagle which surmounted the flagstaff, and after that the flutter of the flag itself. Slowly it mounted, until the stars and stripes were flying all unfurled before us. Then a line of hats came into sight, and still rising, the faces beneath them emerged and a range of curious eyes were bent upon us. And then such a hurrah as only Yankee troops could give broke upon our ears, and they were rapidly climbing the hill and surging toward us. "'Keep cool, men. Don't fire yet,' Colonel Corse shouted. And such was the perfect discipline that not a gun replied. But when the Yankee band flashed above the hilltop, the forty-six muskets exploded at once and sent a leaden shower full into the breasts of the attacking force, who were not over sixty yards distant. It was a murderous fire, and many fell. Most of them retreated over the hill. A few stopped to fire, and it sounded like the sputtering of a pack of firecrackers. The men, in frenzied haste, reloaded their muskets and lay silent and expectant. We could easily hear the officers expostulating and urging the men to reform, and they made a rush the second time, but it was without heart, and when we poured in a close fire, they broke in a panic and disappeared, 
officers and men, over the brow of the hill. We had no time to feel jubilant, for the rattling of drums in our front, the measured tread, the clanking of the accoutrements, showed that the Yankee reserves were coming up. We braced ourselves for the shock, and every man looked backward, hoping to see reinforcements, but not a soul could be seen between us and the village. Our losses had been trifling up to that time, but in our front the ground was strewn with the dead and dying Federals. We noticed many walk, hobble, and crawl over the crest, all undisturbed, for no one fired, and the order to remain in ranks was implicitly obeyed. The seventeenth was on the extreme right and in the air, and it was by the merest chance that the first attacking force had not overlapped us. Had we known what the next fifteen minutes would bring forth, every officer and man would have fallen back to Toombs' Georgia Brigade, which had reformed on the edge of Sharpsburg, for the South Carolina Brigade, which was on our left, gave way. Thus our small force had both flanks unsupported. The enemy knew our position perfectly, and their line far overlapped ours. We heard the commanding officer of the unseen foe give the order. Forward march, dress to the colors, double quick and in a shorter time than it takes to write this, they came over the rising ground with a ringing cheer. When they reached the eminence, every man in the rebel line who could sight a gun pulled trigger. Two hundred or so muskets of the brigade exploded like a bomb. The discharge tore gaps in the line of blue. It reeled, bent, and doubled up, some of the soldiers breaking for shelter. But grit to the backbone, the rest stood their ground and raised their guns. I can never forget that moment. It was photographed indelibly on my mind. The sun glanced and gleamed on the leveled barrels, and the black tubes of the muzzles, not over twenty feet away, turned on us with deadly meaning. I crouched to the ground, and fortunately I was behind a post instead of a rail. I shut my eyes, a second of silence, then a stunning volley, the crash of the splintered wood, a purple smoke, a smell of sulphur, the spat and spud of the bullet, and the seventeenth Virginia, or the remnant of it, was wiped out. The attacking force of the 8th Connecticut and 9th New York and their reserves, a Rhode Island regiment, mingled together, swept forward without stopping to load their guns, and went over the fence pell-mell and disappeared down the hill. I glanced back and saw the remainder of our brigade moving to the rear without order or formation, at a gate which proved they believed the race would be to the swift, just as the battle had been to the strong. As after events proved, it was a sensible retreat for the men rallied on Toombs's brigade and drove back the Ninth New York and Rhode Island Regiment and the 103rd New York Regiment. There had been some desperate fighting on the field of Sharpsburg that day, but no one on our side held such a forlorn hope, bought such odds at such a bloody sacrifice as did the 17th Virginia. It was the only battle in which I ever engaged where the forms and faces of the foe were plainly visible. There was but one of our regiment who was taken prisoner besides myself, Gunnell of Company F. We shook hands warmly. He was unhurt, but his clothing was perforated with balls. I had a bullet hole in my old slouch hat, and my cartridge box was smashed. Two of our victors stopped and took us in tow, and kindly allowed us to walk up our line to see who was killed. It was a sad, sad sight. Colonel Corse lay at full length on his face, motionless and still. I thought at the time he was dead. I stepped across the dead body of our brave color sergeant, and near him, with a bullet through his forehead, lay that gallant, handsome soldier, Lieutenant Littleton, of the Loudon Guards. I looked around for Tom Perry, but he was not there, 
nor was Lieutenant Colonel Herbert, nor about half a dozen privates I knew, so they must have skedaddled in the nick of time. Of the forty-six muskets, as I found out afterwards, that we carried into battle, the bearers of thirty-five lay on that ground, dead or wounded. Every officer was shot down except two. The guards were impatient, so we crossed the fence, and not ten feet away was a surgeon and a group of men around a stricken officer. He was deadly pale and appeared to be mortally wounded. We inquired who he was, and they answered that he was General Rodman, commanding a division, and that a bullet had penetrated his breast. Afterwards I heard that Sam Coleman, of Company G of the 17th, fired the fatal shot. Hurrying back a few hundred yards to the top of another hill out of reach of shot and shell, captured and captors turned to look upon the scene before them. Our forces seemed to be giving ground, and as line after line of Yankee reserves pushed forward, it looked dark for the rebels, as if the star of the Confederacy had neared its going down, and Sharpsburg was to be our Waterloo. A fearful struggle was now taking place in the woods half a mile or so to the left, and the concussion of the guns seemed to make the hills tremble and vibrate. But a change took place in the situation, a marvelous change before our eyes. One moment the Federal lines were steadily advancing and sweeping everything before them, another, and all was altered. The disordered ranks, while so proudly conquering, were rushing back in disorder, while the rebels rapidly pursued. Their bullets fell around us, causing guards and prisoners to decamp. "'What does this mean?' we asked. But its import no one could tell, although the reflux tide continued to bear us back. Finally a wounded prisoner, a rebel officer, who was being supported to the rear, answered the question so eagerly put to him. "'Stonewall Jackson has just gotten back from Harper's Ferry, and those troops engaging the Yankees now are A.P. Hills.' How the Southerner's face glowed as he told us this! What a light leaped into his eyes, wounded as he was! Well, we pass over the supreme, ineffable content of that moment, for we felt all would be right now. If old Stonewall is up, not a man in our army need trouble himself about the result. Yes, we were safe. Still receded the wave of blue. Still forward rushed the wave of gray heralded by the warning hiss of the bullets, the sparkling flashes of the rifles, the mingled hurrahs and wild yells to which the horse cannonading on our left served as a low bass accompaniment, the purplish vapor settled like a mist over the lines. Still we receded, stopping on the top of every rise of ground to watch the battle. It was sunset upon the hills. Again we paused to see the reddened rays strike upon the windows of the little town of Sharpsburg. More vivid now than ever, the flames bursting from yonder house which an exploded shell had fired. We were thinking of that line of motionless comrades lying on the crest of the hill, low down beside the fence, and wondering if the sun was lighting up their pallid faces. At last the bridge was reached, the stone bridge that crossed Antietam Creek, the key point of the Federal position, the weak point in their line the spot so anxiously watched by McClellan. He had sent repeated dispatches to Burnside late that evening as A.P. Hill was pressing back the hitherto advancing tide, and their burden was, hold on to the bridge at all hazards. If the bridge is lost, all is lost. And just here was the point where Toombs's Georgians had made such a gallant defense of the river early in the forenoon, and they were the dead of that intrepid command lying so thick upon the ground. The battle in our front ceased suddenly, though on other parts of the field the firing was kept up. 
As we approached the bridge, we were astonished to find so many troops. Not a man under ten thousand, it appeared, and they were all fresh. Certainly there seemed no danger of Burnside losing the bridge with all those splendid soldiers ready to defend it. Had those men advanced earlier in the day, instead of being held back as they were, this would have been a black day for the South. We had no reserves, and A.P. Hill in the morning was miles away. The Yankees had established a field hospital at this point, where the desperately wounded in the immediate vicinity were carried. A group of four figures lay just as they had fallen, killed by the explosion of a single shell. One of Toombs's Georgians was killed just as he was taking aim, one eye open and the other closed. The figure was hideously lifelike. The profound stillness was pierced at intervals by the booming of some vengeful gun that, like the fabled dragon, seemed never to sleep. Let the sun sink beneath the boundary rim, let the shadows gloom the horrid scene and hide the goddess of slaughter as she moves over this stricken field, gloating over the evils that the passion and ambition of politicians have wrought. Oh, death in life, what a piteous scene! Shut both eye and ear if you can. Still the blood-reeking forms will be plain before your view, and you will hear sounds that seem as if a thousand accursed inquisitors were torturing their despairing victims. Night came on at last, putting a stop to the dreadful carnage of the day, and the tender, pitiful stars shone in the vast dome and looked down upon the scene of desolation and death. The firing had lulled itself to silence, and only the groans of the dying were heard, borne on a murmuring breeze which swept across the hills, as refreshing and tender in its touch as a cool hand laid upon a fevered brow. We prisoners were taken across the stream, where were gathered all of that unfortunate class, representing every command in the southern army, and numbering some five hundred, inclusive of about a dozen officers. Colonel Corse, commanding the 17th Virginia, in his official report, says of this battle, About 4 p.m. the enemy was reported to be advancing. We moved forward to the top of a hill to a fence and immediately engaged the enemy at a distance of 50 or 60 yards, at the same time being under fire from their batteries on the hills beyond. My regiment, being the extreme right of the line engaging the enemy, came directly opposite the colors of the regiment to which it was opposed, consequently being overlapped by them as far as I could judge by at least one hundred yards. Regardless of the great odds against them, the men courageously stood their ground until, overwhelmed by superior numbers, they were forced to retire. I have to state here, General, that we put in the fight but forty-six enlisted men and nine officers. Of this number, seven officers and thirty-two men were killed and wounded, and two taken prisoners. It was here that Captain J. T. Burke and Lieutenant Littleton were killed, two the bravest and most valuable officers of my command. Color Corporal Harper fell fighting heroically at his post. These brave men, I think, deserve particular mention. I received a wound in the foot which prevented me from retiring with our line and was left in the hands of the enemy, but was rescued by General Toombs's brigade, which drove the enemy back beyond the line we had occupied in the morning. In this charge, Lieutenant W. W. Athey, of Company C, 17th Virginia, captured the regimental colors of the 103rd New York Regiment, presented to them by the City Council of New York City, which I herewith forward to you. Those who deserve particular mention for their distinguished gallantry were Lieutenant Thomas Perry, Company A, Lieutenant S. S. Turner, Company B, Color Corporals Murphy and Harper, and Lieutenant Athey, 
of Company C. Lieutenant General Longstreet says of this battle, The name of every officer, non-commissioned officer, and private who shared in the toils and privations of this campaign should be mentioned. In one month these troops had marched over two hundred miles upon little more than half rations and fought nine battles and skirmishes, killed, wounded, and captured nearly as many men as we had in our ranks, besides taking arms and munitions of war in large quantities. General D. H. Hill says in his official report, It is true that hunger and exhaustion had nearly unfitted these brave men for battle. Our wagons had been sent off across the river on Sunday, and for three days the men had been sustaining life on green food. In charging through an apple orchard at the Yankees, with the immediate prospect of death before them, I noticed the men eagerly devouring apples. Further on, General Hill says, the Battle of Sharpsburg was a success so far as the failure of the Yankees to carry the position they assailed was concerned. It would, however, have been a glorious victory but for three causes. First, the separation of our forces. Had McLean and Anderson been there earlier in the morning, the battle would not have lasted two hours, and would have been signally disastrous to the Yankees. Second, the bad handling of our artillery. This could not cope with the superior weight, caliber, range, and number of the Yankee guns. Hence it ought only to have been used against masses of infantry. On the contrary, our guns were made to reply to the Yankee guns, and were smashed up or withdrawn before they could be effectually turned against massive columns of attack. An artillery duel between the Washington artillery of New Orleans and the Yankee batteries across the Antietam was the most melancholy farce of the war. Third, the enormous straggling. This battle was fought with less than 30,000 men. Had all our stragglers been up, McClellan's army would have been completely crushed or annihilated. Doubtless, the want of shoes, the want of food, and physical exhaustion had kept many brave men from being with the army, but thousands had kept away from sheer cowardice. The straggler, lost to all sense of shame, can only be kept in ranks by a strict and sanguinary discipline. McClellan was in one respect at least wiser than Lee. At the beginning of this campaign, he issued an order taking sternly repressive measures against straggling. In this order, dated at Rockville, Maryland, September 9, 1862, he says in part, The safety of the country depends upon what this army shall now achieve. It cannot be successful if its soldiers are one half skulking to the rear, while the brunt of the battle is borne by the other half, and its officers inattentive to lend every energy to the eradication military vice of the straggling. On the day after, he had a proclamation read to every regiment in the army, and it is safe to say he thereby saved himself from utter defeat. It runs, The straggler must now be taught that he leaves the ranks without authority and skulks at the severest risks, even that of death. Every division shall have a rear guard, behind which no straggler of whatever corps or regiment shall be permitted to remain. The bayonet must be used to enforce these orders. Resistance will be at the risk of death. In a dispatch to President Davis nine days after, General Lee says, Our ranks are much diminished. I fear from a third to one half of the original numbers by straggling, which it seems impossible to prevent with our present regimental officers. On September 23rd, in his dispatch to the Secretary of War, General Lee reports, You will see by the field returns sent to General Cooper the woeful diminution of the present for duty of this army. The absent are scattered broadcast over this land. Enough is shown by these extracts to show that fully one-half of the Confederate army were absent. 
nearly every barefooted man left the ranks unquestioned, and thousands threw away their shoes and received permission from their officers to fall out. Now these men were not cowards. They each one argued that my musket won't make any difference in deciding the fight. General Lee's order to the chronic straggler was about as operative as a judge's admonition would be to a hardened criminal. He says in a general order issued September 4, 1862, Stragglers are usually those who desert their commands in peril. Such characters are better absent from the army on such momentous occasions as those about to be entered upon. They will, by bringing discredit upon our corps as useless members of the service and especially deserving odium, come under the special attention of the provost-marshal, and be considered unworthy members of an army which has immortalized itself, and will be brought before a military commission to receive the punishment due to their misconduct. The gallant soldiers who have so nobly sustained our cause by heroism in battle will assist the commanding general in securing success by aiding their officers in checking the desire for straggling among their comrades. Colonel Beach of the 8th Connecticut Infantry, in describing his attack upon our regiment, says, We advanced over the hill. The enemy lay behind a fence, and it was impossible to see them, and our men were under fire for the first time and could not be held. Colonel Fairchild, who commanded the Ninth New York, which captured our position, says, We charged across the cornfield, and arriving at a fence behind which the enemy were awaiting us, we received their fire, losing large numbers of our men. We charged over the fence, dislodging and driving them from their position, down the hill toward the village. End of chapter 31